Nehemiah 6, past couple of weeks, obstacles to rebuilding the wall. Chapter 4, external obstacles. Sanballat is a local foreign leader. He's got some other guys who are aligned with him who don't want this wall around Jerusalem rebuilt. So he tries to intimidate. He tries to discourage the Jews. He's trying to get them to quit doing the work. It doesn't. It doesn't work. Nehemiah rallies the people and they continue to work. Last week we saw an internal obstacle. There's tension between the poor and the rich in Jerusalem. The poor have lent, or excuse me, the rich have lent the poor money. But because the poor farmers are working on the wall, they're not going to be able to bring in their crop, so they're going to default on their loan. And that's creating all kinds of tension. And if Nehemiah doesn't address the issue, he's going to have a lot of guys walking off the job who are going home to tend to their land versus staying and rebuilding the wall. We looked at that last week and how Nehemiah handled that potential uh, crisis. This week, some personal obstacles that Nehemiah faces. Two personal obstacles. Those prior to are really about Nehemiah as a leader. Uh, they're, they're corporate obstacles, if we can phrase it that way. These are really personal and individual for Nehemiah. So chapter 6, we'll read uh, most of the chapter. When word came to Sambalat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not set the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent me this message. Come, let's meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. So that's the 450 BC version of let's meet in the abandoned warehouse down by the lake. They were scheming to harm me. So I sent messengers to them with this reply. I'm carrying on a great project and can't go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same message. Each time I gave the same answer. Then the fifth time, Sambalat sent his aid to me with the same message, and in his hand was an unsealed letter in which was written, It's reported among the nations, and Geshem says it's true, that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt, and therefore you're building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you're about to become their king and, and have even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There's a king in Judah. Now this report will get back to the king. So come, let's meet together. I sent him this reply, nothing like what you're saying is happening. You're just making it up out of your head. They, they were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. But I prayed, now strengthen my hands. One day I went to the house of Shemamiah, and he was shut in his home. He said, let us meet in the house of God inside the temple and let us close the temple doors because men are coming to kill you. By night they're coming to kill you. But I said, should a man like me run away, or should someone like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not go. I realized that God had not sent him, but that he'd prophesied against me because Tobiah and Sambalat had hired him. He'd been hired to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin by doing this, and then they would give me a bad name to discredit me. Remember Tobiah and Sambalat, my God, because of what they've done. Remember also the prophet Noadiah and how she and the rest of the prophets have been trying to intimidate me. So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in 52 days. When all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. So the wall gets built. Not a whole lot of fanfare there. We'll talk about the wall being built next week. This week, we want to talk about these two obstacles that Nehemiah faces. One, these people are trying to harm him physically, and the other, they're trying to harm his reputation or disqualify him from leadership. So Sambalat, we've seen him before. 
He is the leader of this group of foreigners that want to stop the wall being rebuilt. So now they're, they're trying to lure Nehemiah into a, a remote location uh, to harm him. I think they want to kill him is what they want to do. And Nehemiah knows that's what's going on. Whether he knows in his mind factually or just kind of knows in his gut something is not right, he resists them for four times. He says, I'm too busy. I'm doing, a, I'm doing a great work. This is a massive project. I can't leave. So the fifth time, they try to extort him. An unsealed letter, that means anybody can read it, but it's addressed to the king, and it contains a rumor that, according to Sanballat, has been confirmed, but it's confirmed by another one of his kind of cronies, so no. But what it says, if it gets back to the king, is the Jews are about to rebel. They're building the wall around the city because they want to become an independent nation again. They're going to rebel against you, and Nehemiah is going to become the king. Serious charges. That, that would make most people nervous. If you remember, we've talked about this before, that the, the, during the, the king, his name is Artaxerxes, during his reign, he's already shut down the rebuilding project once because people like Sambalat sent him a letter and said, these Jews are rebellious, you cannot trust him. And he went back in his archives and he looked and he found, you know what, they're right. The Jews have a history of rebelling against kings like me. And so he shut the project down. And we said, you know, one of the, the indications that God is in this, that this wasn't just Nehemiah's idea, but God was actually uh, inspiring this, God was orchestrating these events, was the fact that the king changed his mind. And now they have permission from the king to rebuild the wall. But you're wondering, maybe, or maybe Nehemiah would wonder, I would wonder if I was him, if, if the king gets this letter, is he going to think back and go, you know what, they, he, they, it's credible. They do have a history of doing this kind of thing. So then he recalls Nehemiah, takes several months, 900 miles, you got to walk it, takes several months to get back, then however long it takes to work through the rumors, then, however, then a several months to get back to Jerusalem. What happens to the construction project during that time when there's not a leader? We've already seen it, without Nehemiah, the people, they all kind of melt away. He's really holding them together and catalyzing them for the work in so many ways. What happens when they don't have a leader? Worst case for Nehemiah, the king reads the letter, brings him back, and executes him for treason. But even the best case scenario, where the king says, you know what, I, I don't believe these rumors, it's still, it's months and months and months of delay. And Nehemiah, it says a lot to, to me about him, he doesn't take the bait. He just says, nah, you made it up. There's no, no validity to it. He doesn't defend himself. He doesn't fire off another letter. He just gets right back to work. Then this other obstacle, it's, more, it's within the community. It's interesting. We don't know why this group of prophets opposes Nehemiah and the work that he's doing. Again, God sent Nehemiah, and it's God's desire for this wall to be rebuilt. So it's, why is there this group of prophets that's either opposing Nehemiah's leadership or the project or both? But they are. And one of them, Shemamiah, that's how you say his name, He's trying to lure Nehemiah or bait Nehemiah into a really bad decision. He says, people want to kill you, which we've just seen. That's credible. There are people that want to kill Nehemiah. And what he says to him is, is meet me in the temple. Let's hide in the temple. You'll be safe there. Bad for two reasons. One, Nehemiah says, why should a guy like me go and hide in the temple? Don't hear that as you know, bravado, you know, bring them on, I'm going to take them out kind of thing, or what, don't hear that. I think it's more Nehemiah saying, why should someone like me, who's been called by God, who's been put in this position, who's being protected by God, why, why should I go hide in the temple? 
Remember the whole thing that Nehemiah, one of the major things Nehemiah is doing is he's trying to encourage and inspire the people to continue to work. They're nervous and they're afraid, and Nehemiah is trying to get them to continue to work, saying, God's going to take care of us. He's going to protect us. This is what he wants. He's watching over us. If he goes and hides in the temple, it's a mixed message. If the leader is scared, the people are going to be scared as well. But even more than that, it's a sin for Nehemiah to enter the temple because he's not a priest. As a layman, he's not allowed to enter the temple. And so for him to do that under these circumstances, it would be a pretty grievous sin. He'd be disqualified from leadership in the eyes of the people. And Nehemiah, again, whether it's with his brain or with his gut, he knows this guy wasn't sent by God. This is not a message from the Lord. And he resists it and he rejects it. Both of those obstacles, Nehemiah responds to in the same way, and it's by standing firm. He doesn't give in to the temptation. He doesn't take the bait. He doesn't allow the, the intimidation from either this religious group, the, these prophets, or from these other local leaders, their powerful group. He doesn't allow them to intimidate him into doing something that he doesn't feel is the right thing to do. Again, he stands Let me read you a passage from Ephesians 6 that you've probably heard before. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes... You may be able to stand your ground, and after everything, after you've done everything, to stand. Stand firm, then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. So what Paul is telling the Ephesian church when it comes to battling with the enemy is just stand there. Just stand firm. Four times in that one little passage. Stand firm. Stand your ground. When you've done everything else, stand. Just maintain. Which for us, that may feel not great. So the enemy is assaulting us. We have this onslaught. We're just hanging on for dear life and hoping he finds somebody else to bother. Not, not so much. You also may be thinking, well, what about the Great Commission? What about this call to go into all the world and make disciples? What about this call to be light in a dark place? How does that work if we're just supposed to stand? A couple of different things are going on. One, Great Commission, that is outward focus. We do prayer walks, not prayer stands. The idea of getting out in the community, absolutely. That's good and right and as it should be. What Paul is talking about with the Ephesian church, though, it's not that. He's not talking about them. We'll just use the phrase on mission. He's not, or in our language, he's not talking about them kind of doing their deal, engaging in the community. What he's talking about is their own relationship with the Lord. They're standing with God. And what he's saying is when it comes to your standing with God, what, what you're doing is you're just maintaining the ground that Jesus won through his death and his resurrection. You're not fighting for that. It's already been won. So if you think about something just practically, one of the things that Jesus secures for us through his death and resurrection is forgiveness of our sins. 
We don't fight for forgiveness. It's freely offered to us because of Jesus' death and resurrection. Forgiveness is rooted in the grace and the mercy of God. Those are two sides of the same coin. Mercy is the withholding of judgment that we deserve. So in the case of sin, the wages of sin is death. Mercy is I'm not giving you death even though your actions deserve it. Grace is the other side of that. It's, it's giving to us good things that we don't deserve. So in the case of sin and forgiveness, it's life with a capital L. Death is withheld. That's what we do deserve. Life is given. That's what we don't deserve. Forgiveness is an expression of the grace and mercy of God. And all of that has already been secured through the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Again, none of us are fighting for forgiveness. That ground has already been taken. We're not, necessi- we're not talking about being on mission at this point. We're talking about our relationship, our standing with God. And that's been secured by Jesus' death and resurrection. He's already won that victory. And so what Jesus would say to us and what Paul says to us is just stand. Stand firm on the ground that I've already won for you. Remember we said before, Sanballat and his enemies, they can't just come directly at the Jews. They have permission from the king to rebuild the wall. So they can't just amass an army and just and overtake them, overrun them. They can't do that because they'd be going against the wishes of the king. And then they're going to wind up on the wrong end of the military equation. The enemy, our enemy, the devil, it's the same with him. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Jesus. He can't forcibly snatch us from the hand of God. So what he tries to do, there's this ground that Jesus has won. And what he's trying to do is just to get us to go stand somewhere else. He's trying to get us to give up the territory, spiritually, that Jesus has already won. Similar to what's going on with Nehemiah. They're, just, they're trying to get, here's this work that God's called you to. We're trying to get you to do something else. Go hang out in the temple. Go hide in the temple. Go out to this abandoned warehouse. Give up this spot that the Lord has given to you. How do we stand firm? What does that look like for us? So part of it is it's, it's, it's understanding the way the enemy wants to tempt us to give up this ground. And I can only give one example just for the sake of time. Uh, Again, thinking of forgiveness. So there's a parable, Matthew 20, parable of the vineyard workers. You know this. There's a a man, he owns a large vineyard. It's harvest season, so he goes out to get some day laborers to help help him bring in the harvest. He goes at 6 in the morning, and he gets some guys, and he says, I'm going to pay you a denarius. That's a day's rate. I'm going to pay you for the day. He goes out at 9, he goes out at 12, he goes out at 3, he goes out at 5. And every time he recruits more guys to come work. And when the sun goes down at 6 at night, he tells his foreman, pay them and start with the guys who worked the least. Start with the guys who I hired last. So the 5 o'clock guys, the guys that work for one hour, show up and they get a denarius. Super generous. And he starts working back. The guys from 5, the guys at 3, the guys at noon, the guys at 9. He gets to the guys who've been there all day. Working through the heat of the day, definitely done more work than anybody else. And they're thinking, well, if the folks that only work for an hour got a denarius, how much are we going to get? It's going to be more. But it's not. They get a denarius, and they're ticked. And they say to the landowner, this is, you're not doing this right. This isn't, this isn't fair. They work for an hour, and they're getting the same amount of money as us. We worked 12. We worked way more than they did, and it was harder. It was hotter. That's not right. 
And the landowner says, I'm not doing you wrong. We made a deal. I said, if you work for a day, I'm going to pay you for a day. If I want to be generous with my money and give someone who worked for an hour for just part of the day a day's pay, that has no impact on you. Are you envious because I'm generous? I became a Christian when I was 12. I'm 46. I've been a Christian longer than some of you have been alive. And it's easy for me to become a six o'clock in the morning kind of guy. I can say, I've been doing this for a long time. I've been denying myself. I've been serving. I've been resisting for a long time. Teenage years, early 20s, when everybody cuts loose. I didn't do that. And then somebody on their deathbed prays a prayer to be forgiven. And they're going to get the same thing as me? That ain't fair. Easy for me to move off of this ground that Jesus has won. My relationship with God is based on his grace and his mercy and the fact that he's forgiven me. It's not based on what's fair and people getting what they deserve. It's what the enemy wants to do is he wants to lure me off of that one ground. Grace, mercy, forgiveness. And he wants me to move over here to fair, or I may say what's just or what's right. And the thing, I mean, he masquerades as an angel of light, and God is a God of justice. So I might be able to try to explain that or justify that. Deadly for me if I do that. He's trying to, he can't forcibly separate me from the love of God. So he tries to lure me off of this solid ground. This is relating to God is based on grace and mercy. It's not based on my track record or my performance. But it's easy for him or for me to kind of start leaning in that direction as someone who would look at himself and say, I've been laboring since six in the morning. And these guys that come along at the end of the day, that's not right that they're going to get the same thing as me. There's all kinds of issues with that thinking, but you can see how the enemy can do that. Maybe you're in a similar boat. The unmerciful servant, another parable in Matthew. Same idea. Grace, mercy, forgiveness. That's the ground that's won, and the enemy wants to pull us off of that. This, in this case, it's kind of an eye-for-an-eye type deal. People have to pay back if they've hurt me. There's a guy who owes a king 10 thousand talents. So just for the sake of understanding, again, a denarius is how much money you get for working a day. 10,000 talents is 60 million days of work. So if you work 300 days a year, it would take you 200,000 years. So that's how much this guy owes. And the king says it's due. And the guy says, I can't pay it. All right, well, you and your family are going to go to debtor's prison. And he says, be patient with me. I'm going to pay it back. He's not going to pay it back, ever. But the king, because he's merciful, says debt's forgiven. The guy goes out and he finds someone who owes him 100 denarii. 60 million is what he's just been forgiven. He finds someone who owes him 100, starts choking him. Pay it back. Be patient with me, and I'll pay it back. He actually probably could pay it back over time. It's a debt. It's not overwhelming, though. He actually probably could pay the guy back. And the man says, no way. Throws him in debtor's prison. Some other guys hear what's happening. They go to the king, and they say, the, the guy that you just forgave, you, you're not going to believe what he did. 
And they tell him, and the king brings this man back, and he says, how could you treat someone else this way? I forgave you this massive debt. Massive. And you're going to throw somebody in jail over a relatively minor one. And that's us sometimes. We lose sight of what we've been forgiven. And so when somebody wrongs us, we say, you got to pay. you got to pay for this. What the enemy's doing is he's trying to lure you and me off of the solid ground, grace, mercy, and forgiveness, onto this eye for an eye. People get what they deserve. you got to pay. He's trying to lure us away from ground that Jesus has won for us. And maybe you can think of some other examples, some other things that Jesus has won where the enemy is trying to lure us off of that. And what Paul would say is just stand firm. Resist the devil and he'll flee. Nehemiah, one time, two times, three times, four times, five times. No, I'm not going. I'm not doing that. Doesn't matter how, doesn't, the letter doesn't matter. Send it on. It doesn't matter if people are trying to kill me. I'm not going into the temple. That would be a sin. Standing firm. How do we do that? The armor of God. If that's a helpful metaphor for you, then grab on. If not, just take the words. The resources that God gives us. Truth. Righteousness. Salvation. Faith. Readiness. These these resources that he makes available to us so that we can stand firm. One quick example, then we have to be done. Truth and righteousness. In the context of Ephesians 6, truth and righteousness have to do with our behavior. Not necessarily some objective uh, truth and righteousness that God gives to us, but our behavior, behaving righteously versus sinfully or unrighteously, and behaving in a way that's in accordance with the truth of who God is and who he's uh, revealed us to be. So that's what truth and righteousness mean in that context. One of the things Jesus has purchased for us is not just freedom from the penalty of sin, death, but freedom from the power of sin. We don't have to sin. We do, but we don't have to. The chains have been broken. We're new creations now. And so what the enemy tries to do is to get us off of that already one ground of what it is to be free in Jesus. And he tries to lure us back into slavery to sin. And the way he does that, he gets a foothold when we engage in sinful behavior. And what Paul says is you've been given truth and righteousness through the Holy Spirit. You can make a choice to deny your flesh. You can make a choice in the moment to say yes to obedience, to righteousness in the power of the Spirit. You're not giving the enemy a foothold. You're not moving off of the ground of freedom that Jesus has purchased for you. And you can think through that with all of those different uh, resources. Again, we don't have time to go through them. Maybe we'll talk about it more next week. I'm not sure. For this morning, this is what I want you grabbing onto. Stand firm. So the enemy, he can't forcibly snatch you from the hand of Jesus. So what he's going to try to do is, again, he masquerades as an angel of light. He's really good at this. He's going to try to deceive you and deceive me into giving up ground that Jesus has already won for us. He's going to try to get us to move off of ground that Jesus has said is ours. I think most fundamentally, he wants us to move off of the ground of uh, relationship with God that's rooted 
and grace and mercy that's rooted in what Jesus has done for us. And he wants us to stand on the shaky ground of our track record, of our resume, of our performance, even of our thoughts and feelings. Anything other than the objective work of Jesus on the cross. Any other ground, he's happy that we stand on because it's all shaky. And you can play out the different implications of that in your own life. One of them, for some of you, you may constantly be worried, am I actually saved? Am I still, am I actually a Christian? One of the gifts that God gives us is the gift of assurance. The Holy Spirit who testifies with our spirit that we are in fact adopted, that we are in fact sons and daughters of God. Paul talks about the gospel of peace. That is what the gospel of peace is. Peace is to be reconciled with God. He's adopted you into his family. You having a bad day doesn't mean you're getting kicked out. It doesn't mean you weren't saved in the first place. You having a bad week or a bad month or a bad year. Our adoption is based on God's choosing of us, not based on our behavior. All of these, what the enemy's doing is he's just trying to move us off of the solid ground of what Jesus has already given to us. And that's, that's all he's got. That's, that, that's the play, is to deceive us, to keep us from standing firm, walking away. It's not about him plowing you over and you not being able to stand. It's about him enticing you to walk away. That's what he's trying to do, get you to move off of the ground that Jesus has set as yours. We got to pray. It's 1030. So let's do this. A couple of groups. One, I was thinking about this during worship. If you're harassed, I was thinking about five times these guys are just tap, 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 tap on Nehemiah. Come meet us, come meet us, come meet us, come meet us. And for some of you, that's how you feel. You feel like the enemy just tap, 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 constant. If you would say you're harassed this morning, we want to pray for you. We want to pray that you would stand firm. We want to pray that God would step in and be your defender and protector. So that could be harassed in terms of the, maybe a temptation where you, uh, it's a, a constant temptation for you. Or a thought pattern, either of those, a behavior or a thought pattern. We want to pray. And then we also want to pray, as Jennifer and Pam said, if, if Mother's Day is a tender day for you, for whatever reason, you hate your mom, you want to be a mom and you're not a mom, you lost your mom, whatever it is, if Mother's Day is a tender day, we want to pray for you that God would minister to you as well. So y'all pray with me and then Bo's going to lead us in a short time of worship so that uh, anyone that wants ministry can, can respond. And just pray along with me. I left a lot open-ended, so let's just ask the Holy Spirit to close the loops. Holy Spirit, and you pray this in your heart, would you show me the places where the enemy is trying to move me off of the solid ground of what Jesus has won through his death and resurrection? Just pray that and see what comes to your mind. Show me the places. And then pray this. 
Father, I thank you for the resources that you make available to me through the word and through your spirit. And I pray that you would give me the grace to stand firm. I want to resist the devil so that he'll flee from me. I want to stand on the ground that Jesus won through his death and resurrection. I don't want to give that up. So just strengthen me to do just that. In Jesus' name, amen.